Amen. Amen. You can be seated. It is so great to see you. I have a very spiritual question to ask you to start off our time together. Is there anybody here that loves to eat at the Golden Corral? All right, we got a few people. People are like, feel shameful about it. You know, like people are like, I don't really want to admit that. You know, don't feel embarrassed. The Golden Corral is awesome. Where else can you eat country fried steak, pizza, enchiladas, and Cajun fish all for nine bucks? Come on, it's pretty amazing. $12 for dinner, $9 for lunch. They have over 100 different items on the all-you-can-eat buffet. I think it's safe to say if you left the Golden Corral uh, hungry, there's something truly wrong with you. You don't go to the Golden Corral to, like, pick around. You go there to gorge yourself, to eat, right, to be full. And today I want to talk to you about a passage of Scripture that we might call the Golden Corral passage of the book of Colossians. It speaks to us so much about how we can be full of the life of Jesus, the true bread of life. Amen? Open your Bibles today to Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. And uh, the Bible says, For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. I mean, Jesus was full, or we could say even is full, of the fullness of God. We've been looking at the book of Colossians over the last few weeks, and we've been talking so much about the person of Jesus the, the greatness of the person of Jesus. In chapters 3 and 4, we're going to see a lot of application that's built on the foundation of chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 1 and 2 are theology. Chapters 3 and 4 are practicality. But to get practical, you have to have a foundation. Amen? And we got to understand how great Jesus is before we can build a foundation on that. Jesus is amazing. Can I just say it today? Twelve times. Come on, we got to put our hands together. Jesus is amazing. Twelve times in these six verses, Jesus is mentioned. And he's mentioned in every single verse. When you read Colossians 2, 9 to 15, it's Jesus, 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 Jesus. It is truly the buffet, the golden corral of the book of Colossians. We're going to look at it today. It's all about Jesus. And if you're a newer believer and you're like, man, there's all this there's all these books of the Bible to read and all these things to focus on and I don't know where to start. Start with Jesus. Start with Jesus is the beginning. Jesus is the end. Our whole faith is built on one person. His name is Jesus. We got to keep it simple sometimes and not get it too convoluted and too complex. It's all about Jesus. So let's see what Colossians has to say to us about Jesus. I titled the message, I'm Brimming Over, because the theme of this text is about walking and living in the fullness of Christ. Look with me, if you would, at verse 9 and 10. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by Him who is the head over every ruler and authority. And Jesus wants us to be full. And when we are full in Christ, then we don't have to be filled up by anything else. I am full. That's the first blank today. I am full. I am full in Christ. 
I am full. Now, if Christ is in your life, you're full. And a lot of people say, well, you know what? If, if I'm full of Christ, then why do I feel so empty? Has anybody here ever felt just empty? Have you ever felt lonely? Have you ever felt stressed out? Have you ever felt depressed? Have you ever felt burned out? Have you ever felt just so tired you couldn't even get out of bed in the morning because you were so anxious about what was going on in your life? And so the question is, if Christ is the fullness of God and Christ is supposed to be in me, then why do I feel so empty? It's a great question, isn't it? How can I feel empty when I should be full? We have to learn to walk in the fullness of Christ. Amen? And that's a challenge. That's not always easy. But I want you to know that if you are in Christ, Christ is in you, and He's not just in you partially. You didn't get half of Jesus. You got all of Jesus or you got none of Jesus, but you didn't get half of Jesus. He's either all there or he's not there at all. So when Paul says the fullness of Christ is in you, man, listen, deposited in your spirit by the power of the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion, the moment that you called on the name of Jesus is the fullness of his nature and his character. Wow. It's an awesome thing. And the reason that Jesus can fill us up is because he was filled. Notice it says there in verse 9, God filled Jesus, the Father and the Son are the same, and then because Jesus is full, Jesus fills us up, right? Now, if Jesus was empty, he couldn't fill me. But God filled Christ, and Christ fills us, and the reason that we are full is because we are in Christ. Now, we're not the same as Christ, Okay, We're not the same as Christ. When I say the fullness of Christ, I don't mean that we are the same as Christ. I just mean that we can be full of Christ. Amen? I mean, have you ever experienced the fullness of Christ where you had Jesus coming out your ears and coming out of your mouth and you had Jesus coming out of your pores on your body? Come on now. The fullness of Christ. That's the life that God has for you. That's what God wants. God wants you to be full in Him. But we got to learn to walk in that fullness. We really do. Ephesians 3.19 says, May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and the power that comes from God. And I love that word experience. May you experience the love of Christ because we want to experience the love and the fullness of Christ. That's what we want. And he says, Then you will be made complete in all the fullness of of life and power that comes from God. Now, a full person is a satisfied person. I believe one of the reasons we get into so much temptation is because we're not living in the fullness of Christ. We, our tank feels about half empty, and so we feel like, well, I got to go try something else. I got to find my purpose and my sustenance and, and my meaning and my fulfillment. I got to go. I got to go elsewhere. Because, because I got a void, I got a leak in my heart, and I got to plug it up with something else. But listen, when your heart is full in Christ, you're not looking other places. You're like, I'm good. I'm not drawn away by, by maybe all the temptations and all the distractions that other people are getting into and, and whatever it may be, because my heart is full, and my heart is full of Christ. I'm full in Him. I'm full in Him. And then it says, look, He's the head over every ruler and authority. I mean, Jesus Christ is the brain. Jesus is the head. 
Jesus is in charge. Jesus is the CFO. Jesus is the boss. How can I walk in the fullness of Christ? I got to make Jesus the Lord over everything in my life. When Jesus is the head, then I become full. When I put Jesus in charge of my life, Jesus, I don't understand this. That doesn't make any sense to me, but you know what? I'm going to go with what you said. He's the head. Notice it says he's the head, not the tail. Jesus is never referred to in the Bible as the tail. He's always the head. And when we put Jesus at the head, we begin to walk in the fullness of God. Wow. I'm full. I'm full. But not only are we full, in Christ we're also new. We're new in Christ. Check it out right here. Colossians 2.11. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. Now somebody's going to ask you today, what was church about today? I want you to tell them we talked about circumcision. That's exciting, isn't it? Church was about circumcision. Love circumcision. Circumcision, though, as kind of creepy as it is to talk about, not my favorite topic in the Bible, but it is, it is a profound topic. It really is. And if you look at the pages of the Old Testament, when Gentiles wanted to come into the Jewish faith, guess what they had to do? They had to get circumcised. They wanted to see if people were really serious about loving the Lord, right? We make it too easy to believe today. I don't know. It's like in the old days, it was like you got to get circumcised, you know? Today, it's a lot easier. Can you imagine what it would be like to, as an adult male, be circumcised? Anyway, I don't want to dwell on that too much. <laughs> but you know what? When... The topic of circumcision is mentioned. It always refers to repentance and newness because there's a cutting away of something. And God has to cut some things out of our life so he can put some new things into our life. Some things have to be cut away. And our heart has to be cut. He says you were circumcised, not with the circumcision done with hands, but a putting off of the bodily flesh, but the circumcision of Christ the circumcision of Christ is when Christ cuts the old off of our heart and we get a new heart and we get a new life. So I'm full in Christ and I'm new in Christ. See, when you meet Christ, you're not the same person that you used to be. How many of you know that's true? That's true. How many of you have seen some changes in your life, but you're not who you used to be? You used to be this and then you met Christ and now you're this over here. Some of, some of you got friends that are like, man, what happened to you? You know, <laughs> I led a guy to the Lord a few years ago. He was a member of our last church and he went to his high school reunion after he had been a Christian about three years. And he was there with all of his old buddies from high school and they were like, what happened to you? Who are you? You're not the same Bill. And he was like, man, I'm at the Lord. <laughs> That's what... <laughs> You know, is it, is it that obvious? I mean, you know, because uh, he had been seeing incremental changes in his life over a few years. His old friends didn't even know who he was anymore. And it was a welcome change. It was an awesome thing. Man, has Christ made you new? Has Christ circumcised your heart? Has he cut some things away so he could bring about what is new and what is good in your life? 
Well, it's an awesome thing to be circumcised of the heart. Uh, we don't change from the outside in. We change from the inside out. See, that's where real change comes from. A lot of people today want to make cosmetic changes to their life. People come to church a lot of times and they're, they're like, I want to make cosmetic changes. I want to just do like the minimum. I want to do what's easy, what I can do in my own power. I just won't be quite as nasty as I used to be. You know, that kind of thing. Listen, forget that stuff. Christ wants your heart. The way real change happens is when Christ begins to move in here. And real change happens from the inside out, not from the outside in. It's not from what I can do. It's what God can do in me. And then when Christ begins to, to move in my heart, then, 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 then that's when all of the, the real lasting change begins to, to really happen. Ah, that's an awesome thing. You don't change from the outside in. You change from the from the inside out. And a friend of mine a couple of years ago took me over to a house, wanted Gina and I to buy a house. It was an old house. It was a fixer, okay? This would have been a great, a great house for one of those TV shows on HGTV. Like, the place was falling apart. The cabinets were falling off. The paint was awful. The house was probably like 60, 70 years old. The plumbing was a mess. People had left clothes everywhere. It was just a wreck. I was really kind of okay with that. What I wasn't okay with was the huge foundation problems. There were cracks in the foundation. They were like several inches thick. It freaked me out. I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is crazy. I think the house is going to implode. There were cracks in the walls and all that. And, and so we actually decided to not buy the house. Might have been a good choice. I don't know. Somebody said, it's just the soil in this area. I was like, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Uh, no, thank you. You know, anyway. But I thought, you know, what if we would have bought that old house and we would have painted the exterior and put a new roof on and maybe done a great job with the landscaping, but left all the inside the same. Now, first of all, my wife would have killed me, you know, first of all. But it would have given the facade that everything had changed on the inside as much as it had changed on the outside. All the neighbors would have been driving by going, man, you guys did a great job. Way to go. Looks great. Your yard's immaculate. You know, the paint looks off the hook. What else did you guys do? But what if the inside was rotting while the outside looked great? Many times that's how we want to bring change in our life. We change the veneer, we change the exterior, but we don't change the heart. If we want to change the outside, we have to change the inside. We have to change what nobody sees before we can change what everybody sees. That's the way it works. And we got to be new in Christ. I'm full in Christ, I'm new in Christ. Uh, the, the prophet Ezekiel said it like this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You used to have a hard heart. And I'm going to give you a fresh heart. I'm going to give you a circumcised heart. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a, a heart that that is being shaped and, 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 and it's being directed by the power of God. Listen, if your finances are going to be under the authority of God, your heart has got to be changed. Amen? 
I mean, you don't put finances under God's authority by making casual commitments. It's got to be from the heart. If you're going to live a life of sexual integrity and, and purity, it's, it's got to be from the heart. God has to do something in here. That's not just a surface change. That's something in here. Uh, being a part of a church, man, having a devotional life, spiritual growth, it comes from the heart. God wants to change us in here, not just from the exterior. And that's what circumcision is all about. I'm full. I'm new. But check it out. He moves on. He says, I am alive. Did you know if you're in Christ, you're alive in Christ? You used to be dead spiritually, but now you're alive. You're alive. Look, look at it right here. Verse 12. When you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, and when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave all of your trespasses. Now, he says, first of all, we were dead in our trespasses. I mean, we were dead in our sins. Can anybody do anything if they are dead? Can anybody redeem themselves if they are dead spiritually? I mean, he didn't say you were incapacitated, you were limited, you were struggling, you were dead. I mean, done, over. You were dead spiritually. You may feel like, well, I got up and went to the gym, you know, this morning I felt pretty good. But listen, you can be physically alive and spiritually dead. But when Christ comes into your life, you live what's called a resurrected life. The resurrection of Jesus was not just a historical event 2,000 years ago. Jesus changed everything for his followers. When we put our faith in Christ, guess what? We get a resurrected life. How many of you are glad that some old things have died in your past? Amen? Amen. That's a good thing, isn't it? How many of you are glad that some, that some things going on today are going to be ancient history in your life and, and it died because you're moving forward with Christ. You're being resurrected. And he uses the baptism here to refer this. One of the reasons why baptism is so important, it's a sign, it's a symbol of the old person being buried and the new person being raised in Christ. And that's why we love to baptize people because baptism represents that I am spiritually alive. I'm spiritually alive in Christ. Baptism doesn't make me a Christian. It shows that I am one. I'm alive in Christ. I'm resurrected. I'm resurrected. I'm not, I'm not who I used to be. I used to be spiritually dead. Now I am alive. I'm spiritually alive. And he says all, look at that phrase there, all my sin. I mean, in other words, Christ did not forgive some of my sin, some of my trespasses, a few of my trespasses, my past trespasses, he says all, that's a big word. Everybody say all, all, all my trespasses. I mean, not some of them, all of them, all my trespasses. That's why I'm spiritually alive in Christ. Now, he forgives the little sins and the big sins. God doesn't put sins on a scale, but we tend to. We tend to rank sins, you know, like small, medium, large, and extra large, right? 
we got different categories. The consequences of different sins may be different, but God sees all sin the same. We categorize small, medium, and large. Did you know that God forgives the sins that keep you up at night? Did you know that God forgives the sins that nobody knows about but you and Him? Did you know that God forgives the sins that only a few people know about? And He forgives the sins that everybody knows about. He died so that all of our sins could be wiped out. All of them. All of them. The big ones and the little ones. The ones we beat ourselves up about. The ones that we swore we would never do again and we, and we went right back and pushed the repeat button. God forgives all sins. And because He forgives all sins, we can live a life that is alive in Christ. Listen, if you're weighted down by all your sins, how are you going to live in freedom? You can't do it. To be alive in Christ is to realize that God has forgiven you. It's a powerful thing. So I'm full. I'm new. I'm alive. I'm, I'm free, he says. I'm free. Look at this freedom that's described in verse 14. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Nailing it to the cross. Uh, in the ancient world, when you were imprisoned, they would write down whatever sins were committed and it would be nailed to the door of the prison or somewhere very close. When you were crucified, they would crucify you and they would nail up there a list of the crimes that were committed. That's what's being referenced here in Colossians chapter 2. And notice what it says here. He erased the certificate of debt. Now, in the ancient world, the paper that was, that was used was sometimes an animal skin. Sometimes it was a, a paper that was made out of dried reeds. And the ink that was used didn't have the uh, acidic component that we have today. And so it didn't eat into the paper. So somebody could take a, a, like a, a towel or a sponge and could easily wipe away whatever was on the paper. And this is what the apostle is talking to us about here in Colossians chapter 2 when he says he uh, took away our sins by nailing them to the cross. In other words, God took a big dry erase board and a dry erase marker and he wiped everything away. And he took our sins and he nailed them to his cross so that we could be forgiven. So we could be new. So we, we, we could be alive. So we could be free. So, so, so we could be victorious. So we could do all of that. Uh, can you imagine having a debt that you couldn't pay? Some of you know a lot about that. If you've ever faced bankruptcy or you've had financial issues or maybe you took out a loan that was beyond your capacity to pay, you know what it feels like. If you've never been in that situation, imagine if your car a payment or your home mortgage, if you have one of those, if you got a letter in the mail and the lender said, we want to be paid in full, we're tired of loaning you money. Pay up, buddy. It's time. For a lot of us, that would be a little bit scary, would it not? Some of us would be like a little overwhelmed. I'd be a little overwhelmed by that. I'd be like, I don't think I, 
you know, I don't think I got all the cash to cover that. You know, we, we need to figure something out. You have a debt that cannot be settled. It's a lot of pressure. To, to take matters another direction, what if, what if you had a massive loan and you got word from the lender that that loan had been paid off? How many of you would do a little hallelujah dance? Would anybody be excited? Oh, yeah. That'd be reason to celebrate. Yeah, I owed all this money and now it's been resolved. Woo, yeah. I don't even dance. I would break out in some spontaneous movement. I'm telling you, an awesome thing. That's what Christ did. Christ paid the debt. You couldn't pay it. You didn't have the resources. You didn't have the capabilities. You couldn't do it. Christ paid it, and he erased the debt by nailing your list of transgressions to his cross. Jesus was our substitute. Isn't that beautiful? Do you see it? Do you see it? Last night, we went over to eat uh, at one of our favorite restaurants. Next door was another restaurant that we eat at, a a pretty well-known Mexican food restaurant in this part of town, and it had been shut down. The people had been evicted. I was so sad. I was like, I've eaten a lot of fajitas there. Come on, man. And the landlord had posted in the window that the business owed $12,785.66. They hadn't paid their, they hadn't paid their uh, rent in a few months. And they got evicted. And all the furnishings were in there. And, you know, the, the restaurant looked normal. It just looked like the lights were out and the doors were locked. It was kind of sad. Because I've been eating Mexican food there for a long time. I'm like, man, what happened to that place? What would it be like, though, if somebody missed their enchiladas and went and paid the debt? And they wrote out that check for 12000 and whatever dollars to open the restaurant up again. That would be great, wouldn't it? That'd be fantastic. But you know what? The ownership didn't have the money. They didn't have the capabilities to pay the debt on their own, and they had to have some help. They would need some help. God knew that we needed some help. He knew that the debt that we owed was too big. There was too much sin. That's why he sent his son Jesus to die. And he died and he rose again so that you and I could be alive and so that we could be free so that we could be free. Um, Has anybody here seen the new Lion King movie? Anybody? We've got any Lion King fans? Okay. All right. People love Lion King, kind of like the Golden Corral. There's like three of us. I mean, come on, guys. It's amazing because they use real animals and their mouths move. And I'm like, I cannot figure out for the life of me how they got those animals to talk and to move their mouths. It's incredible. But it's a great story. Simba is the little lion cub and... Uh, His father, Mufasa, is like the king lion, and he's training his son to take his place one day, hopefully in the really distant future. The evil uncle lion is Scar, and Scar basically murders his brother, and then he shames the little lion cub into thinking that he was the one that caused his father's death. Simba runs off, And he leaves because he feels shame. And he feels so much shame that he makes friends with a meerkat and a warthog. 
and he's wandering around the African desert singing Hakuna Matata. His life has no purpose, no direction, no nothing, just kind of wandering. He's this big, powerful lion. He's supposed to be the king. Supposed to take his dad's place. He's just aimlessly wandering until one day he sees a vision of his father and he's reminded of his rightful place. And he goes back and he claims what is rightfully his. The whole story centers around the problem of shame. Simba left his identity. He left his home. He left his responsibility. He left his opportunity because he just felt so shamed over what he thought that he had done. When that got alleviated, he went back and stepped into the identity that had been given to him. I wonder how many of us today are not living on purpose and on point with Christ because we feel so much shame. Listen, you can never live a life that is fully alive and fully free if you're dominated by shame. And that's why Christ died. He died so that we would not have to feel and to live under the weight of our own transgressions. He forgave all of our sins. We don't have to live under shame. Christ has taken care of that. Uh, the wrong view of God will keep us stuck. It will keep us stuck in shame. I'm free. But the Bible also says I'm victorious. Check this out. In Christ, I'm victorious. I'm giving you guys the buffet today. Amen? Are you with me today? Okay? I'm full. I'm new. I'm alive. I'm free. I'm victorious. All right, now look at verse 15. I'm victorious. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly and he triumphed over them. I mean, this is so great. I mean, Jesus triumphed over his enemies. Uh, uh, on the surface, the cross of Jesus looks like defeat. On the surface, it looks like Jesus lost. He's been crucified. They put him in a tomb for crying out loud. All that psychobabble stuff Jesus said, forget all that. Jesus is dead. Looked like he had lost. The devil had been trying to defeat Jesus from the beginning of time. In fact, if you look back at the redemptive history of humanity, I'm talking all the way back to the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden. It was the devil who led to the temptation and to the fall of humanity. And the devil thought he had won in that moment. But God sent a sacrifice, didn't he? God redeemed him. And then if you fast forward a little bit to the birth of Christ, Jesus is born, and King Herod makes an edict that all the baby boys that are around his age have to be killed. And miraculously and supernaturally, Jesus and his family flee to Egypt until it's safe to come back again. Oh, the devil thought that maybe, oh, I got him now. I got him. Yeah, he was born, but... The Savior was born, but I'm going to take him out. But he escaped. The beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus is fasting for 40 days and nights in the desert. He's tempted by the devil. I mean, it's some nasty temptation. Nasty. 
The devil's like, Jesus is physically weak. He hasn't eaten anything. He's physically worn down. I'll get him now. But he fails. Finally, Jesus is arrested. He's crucified. Certainly now he will be defeated. Jesus himself even said on the cross, it is finished. Jesus has lost, right? No. When Jesus said it is finished, he didn't mean he was defeated. He meant that it was the beginning because he knew that three days later he was going to rise again from the grave. And that the devil and sin had not won, but that Christ had been victorious. He was victorious as he rose up out of that, that grave. Wow. <laughs> Paul's talking about a Roman triumph. If you, if you read verse 15 and you study history, the Romans loved to celebrate. First of all, they loved to fight. The Roman Empire was so massive because they would go and fight and steal everybody's land. And so they would throw these massive parties called Roman triumphs. They would celebrate through a procession the victories that were won around the world. It was the highest honor granted to a, a victorious general. To get a Roman triumph, you had to defeat an uh, uh, army killing at least 5,000 of the enemy and ending the war. So you had to be a pretty big dude to be able to have this kind of celebration. But if you defeated the enemy and you killed more than 5,000 bad guys, they would celebrate in the streets. In the procession, the magistrates and the members of the Senate would come first following musicians and then sacrificial animals. They would put on display the spoils of war Look at all the loot. Look at all the stuff we confiscated. If they had animals that they had taken from these faraway lands, they would bring those back to Rome. They would sport them. They would show them off. People would proceed through the streets. This was a huge celebration. And then behind the spoils of war would be the captured prisoners in chains. See, they didn't want to kill all the bad guys. They wanted to bring them back to Rome, shame them, and then kill them. How about that? <laughs> and then behind the prisoners in chains riding in a chariot with a laurel crown on his head and a royal and purple toga and tunic would be the general. After the march, they would sacrifice at the temple of Jupiter. The prisoners would usually be slain and they would have a huge feast. This is a huge celebration. This is a big deal in the Roman culture. And the apostle uses this word, triumph, to describe the great victory that Christ has won. Look at it again. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them. Jesus triumphed over his enemies. Jesus triumphed over the devil. Jesus won the victory. He shamed them. He walked all over them. I mean, we thought having a Super Bowl party, a Super Bowl parade celebration a few years ago with a million people was a big deal. I mean, and it is a big deal, but like the celebration, the victory that Jesus won even exceeds that. 
It's incredible. He shamed him, man. He shamed the devil. How dare you, devil? You thought you were going to take me out. I'm going to walk all over your head. <laughs> You've been defeated. You got nothing on me. It's that beautiful imagery that describes the victory that Christ won. Listen, his victory can be your victory. If you put your faith in Christ, if you'll walk with God, you can be a victorious person in the Lord. You'll walk on the heads of your enemies. You'll do things other people didn't even think were possible because Christ is in you. So we got to eat this buffet today. I'm full. I'm new. I'm alive. I am free. I'm victorious. I'm victorious. And that's what Christ has done in us and what he wants to do through us in our own lives. Let's bow together for a word.